Welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and host, Alexa Tullet. Alexa, how is it going? It's going pretty good, Yoel. How are you? I'm good. I want to know whether you're sad that we're postponing the topic that you came up with and that we had done some research on for another day. Very sad. I was very excited to talk about this. Um, but I guess we'll just have to leave our listeners in suspense. But it was going to be like, I mean, the topic that we're talking about today is sort of interesting. Um, but this topic that I wanted to talk about is like high drama. So we're really just doing this more as a listener service than and any, anything else, right? Bumping your topic for this other inferior topic. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Very generous of me. Yeah, well, I mean, never let it be said that you don't give all you can to our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> You're too selfless. That's your problem. I've told you this before, actually. I know. It's just a you know, constant struggle. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I sound like I'm being sarcastic, but I'm actually not. Okay, <laughs> so we, we are recording this on uh, June the 19th, a Monday. Um, that is a few days after um, some huge allegations regarding uh, a paper about dishonesty. Uh, hit the internet. And so we bumped our a previously planned topic uh, to talk about this. And we're going to get into that. Um, it is a case that's pretty wild involving uh, fabricated data, what, what looks very likely to be fabricated data, and possibly a much wider ranging pattern of data falsification by a prominent researcher. Uh, so we're going to get into all that. But first, beers. Alexa, what's going on with you? Okay, so I'm, um, well, first of all, happy Juneteenth. Um, although it won't be Juneteenth for our listeners. Yeah, we, we don't get that we don't get that as a holiday, sadly. But in the US it's now a federal holiday, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. Um so I'm drinking um Tangerine LaCroix today, which I know is um Boo. as as usual, betraying my um my responsibilities to drink two beers as part of this podcast. Um but as we'll see as we get into the details of this um fraud stuff. Uh, I just am not sure that I can explain calc chain um, if I'm also drinking beers. So that's that's true. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're going to be the one explaining calc chain <laughs> for our listeners, All right, Because I am drinking, so I have an Oslo Brewing Company Stone Fruit Sour, uh, cherry, apricot, and peach sour, and this is from. Oslo Brewing Company, Oslo, Norway. I actually bought this in Rhode Island, so it's an import. Um, I have not tried this yet, so I'm very excited to crack this open and see what. I don't. I don't see a lot of beers from Norway. You know, I I think the Norwegians uh, maybe they just don't get distribution. Yeah. Uh, yeah, in the Netherlands, there you you would see Norwegian beers sometimes. It's just they 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 rarely make it to our shores. You know, so I'm glad that this one uh, that this one did. Cool. That's exciting. All cool. right. All right. Here we go. Oh, it's nice. It's very like fruity and summery. Mickey would love this beer. So is my tangerine LaCroix. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, cheers. Cheers. Okay. So should I give the kind of background here maybe? Sure. Yeah. Go for it. Okay. So longtime listeners right, might remember episode 73. You and I, Alexa, had on Joe Simmons mm -hmm. um, to talk about fraud. Um, and specifically to talk about what at that time was a recently retracted paper 
in uh, PNAS Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences um, called uh, Signing at the Beginning Makes Ethics Salient. Uh, and this was, a, as we said at the time, a really influential paper that purported to show that people were more honest if you had them sign uh, at the top of a document and then you know fill out some stuff where they could maybe uh, lie or misrepresent versus signing at the bottom of the document. And the idea is signing at the top makes your ethical standard salient to you, and you're less likely to do unethical stuff. And that uh, paper contained uh, a study, uh, a field study, study three, um, that was uh, the responsibility, uh, the data collection was the responsibility of one of the authors, Dan Ariely, um, and an insurance company that he worked with. Right. Um, and uh, at that time, the PNAS paper, which had been very influential, been cited a lot, been talked about a lot, um, had just been retracted uh, because everybody agreed that the data from study three were falsified. Uh, what wasn't clear at the time and still isn't clear is who did the falsifying. So we know that none of the other authors um, besides Ariely were responsible for the data from that study. Um, but it's not clear whether Ariely or somebody he worked with at the insurance company was responsible for the falsifying of the data. Right. Uh, Ariely says that the insurance company sent him those data, and the insurance company says basically, we don't have a lot of records and don't know. And that's where the case still lies. Papers retracted, okay. not clear where the falsified data came from. So, update. It appears that independently, the other two studies in that paper, which were lab studies uh, that were run by one of the authors, Francesca Gino, so the other authors did not collect those data, it appears that those two studies also independently were falsified. Right. So, just, just to recap this, this paper about dishonesty contained data that were independently fabricated by two different people. Yeah. Which, that is just like, I mean, you just have to be like, what the fuck, right? Yeah, that's like, you, you can't make that stuff up. Cannot, you, would, you would get laughed out of the room. Yeah. Be yeah, like, right. there's no way, the audience won't buy it, right? Right, yeah. Right, so... um. I think maybe it makes sense first to talk about, okay, what is the evidence regarding this uh, this study? Um, and uh, and then maybe we can talk about, well, how did this happen and what are the consequences going to be? Does, does that order sort of make sense to you? I think that sounds, that, that makes sense. Okay, great. Um, so these uh, uh, allegations, um, the description of what appears to be like very strong evidence of uh, somebody messing uh, with these data are outlined in a post on the blog Data Collada. That's the blog from Joe Simmons, uh, Yuri Simonson, and Leif Nelson. We'll drop a link to that in the show notes. It's uh, Data Collada post 109 um, called <laughs> Cluster Fake, which is just, oh man, what a title. So, uh -huh. so basically... Um, what this relies on is the fact that uh, the data from this study were posted on the Open Science Framework um, as part of a replication effort that was conducted by some of the authors. So those those data were publicly available. So aside for a second, um, mm. I thought that was interesting that this paper that had two studies where um, the data were tampered with was replicated by like mostly the same authors. I think there may be one or two changes. Um, and in the replication, they failed to find evidence of the effect. And the reason that I found that odd was like, 
um, how how bizarre to to tamper with your own data and then try to replicate it and then and then be like, oh wow, it doesn't hold up. But it seems like there's um, different authors who have different roles. So the three authors who initiated the replication um, are the last names Crystal, Willens, and Bazerman, I believe. Um, and so I think that they independently sort of called for this replication because they were um, worried that the results weren't replicable. And then um, Ariel and Gino were also on this replication. And that's, yeah, as you say, that's where the data um, were posted that they could then sort of like look into. Yeah, so this paper is, uh, the PNAS paper that's now retracted has a sort of odd backstory of um, Max Bazerman and his, I think she was his grad student at the time, Lisa Shu were working on this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Ariely had been talking about a very similar study. Uh, but then that the behavioral data, like the lab data, were actually collected by Francesca Gino, not by Bazerman or Shu. Lisa ended up being the first author. So kind of like oddly, she didn't collect any of the data from the paper. Mm-hmm. Um which is, uh, you know, a, a great position to be in as a grad student, unless it happens that all the data are uh-huh. are fake, which is really, oh man, what a um, really really a terrible situation to be in as a grad. what an unexpected yeah bummer. Um, anyway, so right, so yeah, this kind of odd situation where and Bazerman has actually written about this in his book Complicit. Uh, where he, I think, after a while, became kind of suspicious of these results, didn't buy them anymore, um, and signed on to this independent replication, is my understanding, of the results that then failed to replicate um, the the lab findings. Uh, So obviously, all the authors, I think, at least had access to the data, and the original data were posted, and that's how they became public. Right. Um, okay, so these are the, the analysis here is of the data of study one. This is an Excel file, um, and these rows are sorted first by condition and then by participant ID number. Or so it seems. Or so it seems. And they are almost, but not quite, perfectly sorted. There are some rows that are out of order, and uh, by that, that is the participant ID number doesn't ascend within condition. And there are some rows where the participant ID number is duplicated. So those rows seem odd, right? They don't mm-hmm. fit with the rest. And you're like kind of, well, okay, what is going on with those rows? So when you look at a plot, and if you look at the data collada post, they have a figure that shows this, a plot of um, where are the biggest effects like those rows, those dodgy rows show absolutely enormous effects of condition. Right. So if they're in the condition, so there were three conditions: uh, sign at the top, sign at the bottom, don't sign at all. Um, and in the sign at the top condition, they're supposed to be more honest. Those rows that look out of order in the sign at the top condition, they're like way more honest. And it, mm-hmm. in the other condition, two conditions, they're like way more dishonest. Right. So. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who are like really seem to be driving this result. So does that are are you with me so far? I'm with you. Okay. So the fact that those participant ID numbers are out of order is strange, but not necessarily a, a smoking gun. Right. So if you were like if you were really trying to give the authors the benefit of the doubt, you might think, okay, when you're analyzing data. 
in Excel, sometimes you like sort by various different things, right? Um, in order to like look at patterns and things like that. So maybe what the authors did was they wanted to see, okay, well, are these patterns, I don't know, do we see a different pattern if we like sort by gender and then we like look at the means or something like that, right? Um, and so you could you could imagine thinking like, okay, maybe maybe participants are just out of order because they sorted by some other um, variable. And um, yeah, there's nothing suspicious about. So I, I would say like, yeah, these ones that like look out of order are the ones that show like enormous effects. I would say that's like, yeah, you know. Right, that, that starts to look pretty. Starts to look kind of bad. But you might be like, well, maybe there's some innocuous way in which like maybe they did somehow sort on the DV or something. Um, right. And, and, and that's why it's, you know, like you could, you can maybe come up with something. At least it's not, I, I wouldn't call that a smoking gun. I'd be like, yeah. oh, that's, that's real. That's real odd. Um, mm-hmm. It does look like the row with a duplicate um, ID number also has duplicate demographics, like the, the demographics, like mm-hmm. the age and the major of the, um, of the participant are exactly the same. Um, that also seems a bit, uh, Oh boy, it sure looks like that row has been copied, but you don't you don't know for that for sure. You know, people can have the same age and major, right? So all of this stuff is kind of, I would say, like pretty bad, but not like open and shut. Is that does that seem fair? Yeah, that's that's what uh, I mean. At this point, the like, yeah, the fact that these show the strongest effect starts to starts to look pretty damning. But yeah, I wouldn't like you know, contact the New York Times about it with, with that, I guess. Now we get to CalcChain. And since <laughs> you're the sober one, I'm going to let you explain CalcChain. Okay, well, this is my best effort to explain CalcChain. Um, so uh, you may not realize that an Excel file is actually a collection of files, or I guess you could, um, I guess the Excel file is considered a zip file, which means that it's um, composed of multiple different kinds of files that get sort of merged into the beautiful spreadsheet that you see when you open Excel. Um, So there are some files that just hold numbers, and there are some files, I guess, that just hold text. And then there are some files that hold information about how the spreadsheet was created. And one of those is CalcChain. And so this this might be a little bit off, but I think approximately what CalcChain does is it keeps track of the order in which formulas are executed, and I I believe that aligns with the order in which formulas were created in Excel. Um, so if, for instance, you created a file in Excel and you um, wrote a formula in one of the columns and you dragged it down, what CalcChain would record is that the formulas would be executed from whatever first formula you entered down to the bottom from where you dragged it. Um, And so that's just sort of a set of instructions for Excel so that Excel knows what order to execute the formulas when you open the spreadsheet. Um, And the reason that it's useful in um, examining what's been done to a spreadsheet is that if you say, do what I suggested, right? So you drag down a formula let's say down 100 rows because you have 100 participants, right? If you move, let's say, participant number 50 down to the bottom, so now they're in position 101, um, the calc chain will still execute that in the 50th position because that formula was written as the 50th formula. Um, But I guess maybe more importantly, 
Um, if you look at the CalcChain file, you can see the original position of that um, row. So you can look at a CalcChain file and see um, that the data that's entered in row 101 now was initially in position 50. And in this case, what that does is provide clues to us about how data may have been moved around. And because the participant numbers also happen to be sort of wonky, like they seem like they might be out of order, um, that gives us, us an additional piece of information that sort of corroborates where that row might have additionally, or sorry, might have initially been in the file. Um, so once you start sort of piecing things together, you start to see, okay, these participants seem to have been moved in these ways, which ultimately becomes relevant because it seems that they were moved between conditions. I think that was a great explanation. Thank you. So basically, CalcChain tells you where was this row when the formula was first created, right? Irrespective of where it is now, where did it start? And so you can see that a row that has these wonky uh, ID numbers used to be in a totally different place in the file. And what that suggests is that those rows were moved around from one condition to another condition. So the way that this would work, if you want to produce an effect, you have like one condition where uh, the mean is supposed to be low, another condition where the mean is supposed to be high. So you sort by condition, and you find in the condition where the mean is supposed to be high, the people who have particularly low observations, and you stick them over into the condition where the mean is supposed to be low, right? And vice versa. Mm -hmm. So you just move them into the condition where their data confirm your hypothesis. It's actually a nice way to falsify data. Um, because those, uh, you know, those responses come from real people. You have actual, like, real folks creating your data. You're just, like, moving them between conditions. So it's it's pretty hard to catch, actually, yeah, if you do right. it well. Yeah. Like, an observer might wonder, okay, if you're going to fabricate data or fake data or tamper with data, why not just, you know, like, create the data from scratch, right? Because collecting data takes time and money. Um but I think one reason that people, well, actually, I mean, there could be many reasons why this was, this data was tampered with in this way. And, you know, who knows if that was the original intention um, or the original plan. But, yeah, I think it's surprisingly difficult to create just like data from from scratch or off the top of your head or even using random number generators or something like that that look like real data. Um, and people can catch that kind of thing pretty quickly. Yeah. So the safest way is to get data from real people and to move them around a bit such that they conform to your hypotheses. I mean, you're right. I, I was almost sort of suggesting, oh, this is like the mastermind way to do it. You know, you're you're smart. So you're like, aha, when people just try and make up values, you know, they do it in a way that's actually implausible to what real data look like, or even when they use, like, like you said, um, some sort of algorithm to generate the data. There can be gotchas there. So like, why not actually run the study and then do it in the least mm -hmm. detectable way? Another explanation might be, you know, you really thought the thing would work and you get right. the data back and you're like, dang, okay, well now, you know, what, what, what can I do? Right. Um, and, and I suppose the speaking against this like mastermind hypothesis is, it, you know, it's astoundingly incompetent to like leave participant ID numbers duplicated, right, right. To, to leave them out of order, right? You would think just regenerate the participant ID numbers within condition and you've covered your tracks there. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, whoever falsified these data 
didn't do that, right? And that that doesn't scream, you know, evil genius to me at all. Uh-huh. Um, so maybe it's more plausibly the other thing, which is, yeah, like, study was run expecting that the data would turn out, and when they didn't, well, now we have to help them along a bit. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've seen, like, cases of fraud like this where, yeah, the explanations that people give is, yeah, they thought that things would work, and then they... um felt, you know, intense pressure to have them work. And so, um, yeah, they went in and played around with them. And I think, you know, you can imagine this sort of falling along a continuum, right? So there are the things that we, actually, we've become increasingly wary of these things, but we don't usually call them fraud, right? So you could imagine looking at the data and seeing somebody who has a value that goes against your hypothesis and then kind of like coming up with a reason why their data is not very valid or whatever. And that kind of thing, that kind of p-hacking um, uh, likely happens a lot. And, you know, we have more ways of cracking down on that now, like people have to say ahead of time. Um, or we we reward people for saying ahead of time, like how they're going to exclude people and things like that. But yeah, you can imagine these kind of more subtle ways of manipulating data. Um, and then, yeah, this much more overt, like actually swapping people. Um, yeah. Yeah. So here's one possibility is like, I stopple, I think from the beginning just made stuff up, just like sat down and typed things into um, SPSS or whatever. It's possible that a researcher might get used to really intense p hacking. Um, and then yeah. when that no longer is possible because our standards change, then transition to fraud. Mm-hmm. Because they don't know how to study things that are real. Mm-hmm. Like their research is, you know, they're studying hypotheses that are false and we need results to publish. And how do you get those results? First, you p-hack when that's not available, then, well, you have to start kind of helping the data along. Right. And and your point about like you're studying things that are false, that's not um, accidental either. That's also sort of baked into the system because... Um, you know, most of us who have tried to publish a paper in psychology have gotten the feedback like this was obvious. We already knew this. People have already shown this. And so there is this like incentive to find something really surprising, really shocking, very counterintuitive. Um, and so, yeah, if you're trying to show people something that they would have never believed until, you know, your data was there to show it to them, it's much more likely that it's actually not true. Right. Right. Exactly. So, I, I mean I don't know what to what to make of this as a as a pattern or like what sort of attribution to make about like researcher intent here. Um I, I think the elephant in the room, which we've sort of been talking around, um, is that these data were collected by Francesca Gino and evidently not touched by any of the other co-authors uh, on the paper. Mm-hmm. Um, so the data Clada blog post talks about study one. In a footnote, they say, oh yeah, we think study two is fake as well, um, but but we're not going to talk about it here. Mm-hmm. Um, and they write uh, very uh, directly um, about her. We discovered evidence of fraud in papers spanning over a decade, including papers published quite recently in 2020. In the fall of 21, we shared our concerns with Harvard Business School. Specifically, we wrote a report about four studies for which we had accumulated the strongest evidence of fraud. We believe that many more Gino-authored papers containing fake data, perhaps dozens. So I think here it's, it's right to be a bit careful. Obviously, these are incredibly damaging accusations. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but if this is true, I think this is like U.S. stopple because Francesca Gino is huge in like in the business school world and decision making. Um, she's written a pop book. Uh, she gives very well compensated talks to major corporations. She's authored like literally hundreds of papers with all sorts of different collaborators. And God knows how many of those might have falsified data in them if these allegations are true. And I, the data Colada folks have never been wrong yet. So I do trust them. And if they uh-huh. say yeah. dozens of papers, I believe dozens of papers, right? And that's right now just an allegation. But we do know that Harvard themselves did a very exhaustive investigation that produced a 1,200-word report, that she's currently on administrative leave. So it seems like Harvard did an investigation, and they found some really bad stuff. Wait, quick correction. I think this report was 1,200 pages. Oh, sorry. Did I say word? (laughs) Oh, 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 yeah. Pages. Sorry. I misspoke. Thanks, Alexa. I just want people to like imagine this 1200 page document. I mean, it's just insane, right? So I I think there's every reason to take these accusations seriously. And you do want to say like, look, you know, maybe by some crazy series of events, um, this is all not as bad as it looks. And actually she didn't do anything wrong. But I mean, at some point you have to like kind of look at the weight of the evidence and say like, from everything we can tell, this seems really, really plausible. Yeah, right. So, yeah, like this is what is your feeling about how this is going to affect the field? Because I really feel this could be really big for us. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. So, you you alluded to um, Stoppel, who was it 2010 or 2011? Um, that this happened t- uh, 2011, I think. I mean, this didn't happen in isolation, right? It happened um, in coincidence with a few other events, but they had a huge impact on the field in um, in combination, right? So um, Stoppel was found guilty of fraud, and then we also had um, Simmons, Nelson, and Simonson published their paper about p-hacking. So these are the same... Um, the same authors that had have done the investigation into Gino. Um, and then we also had uh, Daryl Bem's paper come out in JPSP about our ability to sense the future, right? And yeah, I think that that most people sort of understand that combination of events as something that precipitated the replication crisis and things like our um, like increased focus on open science and uh, improving research practices and things like that. Um, and so we've, we've done a lot of that, but clearly, um, that hasn't eliminated fraud, um, which isn't so surprising because none of those sort of like open science or research methods advances, um, can eliminate like people who are willing to lie about their data, right? We have a lot more ways now of being held accountable, um, and of tying our hands and in some ways, maybe this wouldn't have um, this wouldn't have come out if it weren't for the replication crisis and the resulting sort of changes in norms, because the data would never have been publicly available, right? Yeah, that's right. It's it like we talked about in the episode with Joe. Um, it's 
having data posted that makes all this possible, right? If the data from um, this BNAS paper hadn't been posted, they never would have found out that study three was faked. Uh -huh. um, and uh, same here, right? It was the available data that that um, made it possible to discover this. I don't know how people are um, how people are going to respond to this. Like, so I know that one thing that people have been talking about a lot is sort of um, Gino's prominence in the field, and also that likely she has a high salary. She gets these high speaker fees, um, money from book deals and things like that. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's there's this sort of like desire for um, justice, I guess, in cases like this, where it's like, oh, maybe that wouldn't have been possible if, you know, there was no data fabrication, right? Like maybe, maybe sort of got to that level of prominence because, um, because you were able to sort of create these effects that are like surprising and, um, and newsworthy. Right. Um, and so that culturally feels kind of, um, problematic to me from the outset. Like, I, I don't think that my guess is that this is like much more widespread than we would hope. Um, I don't think that, that this is the only, this is going to be the only case that we see. And I think that's a reflection of um, norms and incentives in the field that really still have not disincentivized this kind of thing. I mean, it, it does seem hard, like people talk a lot about norms and incentives. And I agree that like some of this is the result of like valuing bad stuff. Like these flashy counterintuitive studies are valued more than they ought to be. Mm -hmm. um, and as you pointed out, uh, those are hypotheses that are likely to be false. That's almost part of the definition of being counterintuitive. Um, so it ends up that you're incentivized to do studies on things that are false. Um, and maybe then incentivized to p-hack or uh, fabricate in order um, to get those studies to show uh, the predicted effects. But, you know, let's say we just incentivize really good research. You can still do more really good research if you're making up your data than if you're not, right? So, like, for whatever metric of quality, like, the data fabricator has an edge over the non-fabricator. Unless your part of your definition of good data is not fake. Is it? <laughs> right. Is non-made up, right? Yeah, but let's say we're like, okay, we want it to be like theoretically rigorous. We're not going to like emphasize novelty or uh, counterintuitiveness. We're going to emphasize, you know, theoretical progression. Um, we're going to emphasize stuff that appears to be really well run and rigorously analyzed and all that stuff. People who make up their data, you know, they they can get stuff to work that people who don't make up their data cannot get to work. So I think there is just inherently an, an advantage to making up your data. Right. So it, it it isn't all, you know, we just value the wrong things as a field. Unless you're like, well, we value too much that people publish a lot or in prestigious places or stuff like that. But then it's like, well, how do you, like, that's the whole basis for our, like, selection process is that people advance knowledge by publishing lots of interesting papers that people care about. I, I do think that that is one reaction Um that one might have to this situation and and a reaction that I have is just that like the I guess the like level of um like inequality I guess between the researchers who are these like superstars and the researchers who are just sort of like um run-of-the-mill 
you know, everyday Joes like you and I. <laughs> that's me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not going to say anything about you, but that's definitely me. Like it's, it's a, it's like a totally different world, right? Um, when you're, yeah, publishing what, 457 papers and you have over 32,000 total citations. Um, and yeah, I don't know, maybe we should, yeah, have like a, a more socialist um, academic system or something like that. I mean, it's funny that you say socialist, right? Like, so yeah, I mean, I feel very lucky to have my job and I'm, you know, financially comfortable and that's awesome. But like, this is at this level, at the Francesca Gino level, like you are legitimately rich. So I don't know exactly how much Harvard Business School pays its faculty, but I would imagine um, somewhere between three and $500,000 per year at the full professor level. And then you have the book deal, you have the speaker fees. Somebody looked up her speaker fees and they're in the like tens of thousands, I believe from memory. Yeah. I saw, I saw 50 to a hundred thousand. I don't, I don't know if that's right. Right. Uh, So like we're talking about literal millions of dollars over a decade, right? Salary alone, you know, you're in the three to five range. And on top of that, you do exec ed, you do speaking, you have the book, you know, you could be making, let's say $10 million in 10 years, like real fucking rich person money, right? Mm -hmm. And all you have to do is be willing to make up your data. I mean, here's where it gets like, okay, you know, on the one hand, you're like, uh, a lot of victims here. And should we be focusing on being punitive? But I'm kind of like, fuck, yeah, we should. Like, you embezzle money, you go to fucking prison, right? It, this is dishonesty in the same way. Like, maybe it's harder to point to a direct victim. I don't actually think any of this, like, let's say that somebody in this position made up a bunch of data. I don't think it's a crime. I think you just get fired and your papers get retracted and, you know, you're ashamed to show your face in front of scientists, but that's it. You get to keep your $10 million or whatever it is. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, so I am like a little fired up about just the injustice of that. No, I mean, I agree. Like, it does feel like um, it, I guess, like losing your job if that ends up happening or, you know, having your papers retracted is just like, Okay, so this reminds me of um, of an example of a much, much um, smaller example of fraud where I had a student um, cheat on a, an assignment. Like they plagiarized it. Basically, like they submitted a paper that was just cut and paste abstracts from the internet. <laughs> that's also that's before so the days of chat GPT. <laughs> right, right. What we had to resort to before the AIs could write the papers for us. <laughs> um. And I went through uh, my school's um, academic misconduct procedures. And in the end, the the decision that the higher-ups made was that the student should get a 50% on the assignment. What? How? And I was like, that's completely bonkers. Like, at, at the very least, this person should get a zero. They didn't do the assignment at the bare minimum. But there sh- isn't there also, like, a penalty? Like, there's there's no reason to not do it if the like punishment is it will be as though you didn't do it. Right. And I feel like there's like sort of a similar vibe here where it's like, you know, it seems like the punishment might be okay. The things that you got from, from faking data 
are now taken away. Yeah, yeah, right. And and we're we're even making assumptions here, right? We're assuming yes. that if it proves out she's fired or is forced to resign or whatever, right? Um, we, we don't even know that with certainty, right? So this is mm-hmm. also nebulous still. Um, and if you think about the costs, I mean, so then there's obviously that you're taking a job that could have gone to somebody who wasn't making up mm-hmm. their data. Um, but then there's the costs that are, you know, more diffuse, but but real, like to your co-authors. So imagine being a co-author of somebody like this, where now you have to spend a ton of time re-examining these papers that are under a cloud, maybe retracting papers because mm-hmm. your co-author contribute falsified data for one study, like mm-hmm. a paper that otherwise is good, but because that one study is tainted, the whole thing has to be retracted. Mm-hmm. And and then also like our... <laughs> I'm always laughing. Credibility is a field, you know, <laughs> such as it is. <laughs> right? Like, it just makes us look like fucking clowns. Why should anybody listen to us if this sort of shit yeah. is going on? Yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah. 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 And the, the your point about the co-authors, too. Like, so it's nice that in this data collada post, they were able to say, um, you know, for this study, the data are all, like, these data were either... Dan Ariely or the insurance company. And these data were Francesca Gino and no one else, right? But it's kind of rare that that's the case, right? Where you can say, you know, any kind of tampering is clearly due to this one person and everybody else is completely in the clear. Um, And I think that really, really sucks for um, co-authors. And you can also see, I mean, from our explanation of how the the data collada authors... um, identified this fraud, right? There are there are some cases, I think, where fraud can be more obvious and there could be these sort of glaring signs. But in order like for them to convincingly show that this is fraud, I mean, they have to use CalcChain, you know, and most people are not using CalcChain. Juliana Schroeder had a, a good um, Twitter thread. She's a mm-hmm. co-author of Francesca's on a number of papers and she's having to go back through all of those papers, audit yeah. who collected what data, like who touched the data at all. Like it, it's just just a massive amount of work that you just have to do at that point, right? She's like, what she's doing is like the only responsible thing to do. But who wants this dropped on them during their summer? You know, it's just mm-hmm. and you're you're always going to be somewhat under this cloud of like these papers, you know, even if in the end it it's determined that she uh Gino um didn't collect any of those data, you're still like, oh, now she's on the paper and people are kind of raising an eyebrow and, oh, can we believe this? You know, it does, like it happened with Stoppel. Like it really rubbed off on his co-authors in a way that I think is unfair given that they weren't involved in the fraud, but that uh, kind of is unavoidable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of um, very tangible costs, I think. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just really, I'm angry with people who do this. It's just... It, it enrages me in a way that uh, I recognize, you know, this is not the worst thing you can do. Lots of people do lots of terrible things, right? But somehow this is just like it really pushes a button for me because it just so, it's just so selfish in the end. It fucks us all when it comes out. And yet, yeah, probably people justify it to themselves as victimless crime, but it's totally not. Do we know how people justify it to themselves? I mean, obviously you can't you can't um speak for everybody, but um 
I never I never read Stoppel's uh, memoir. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I did. Um, I mean, who knows how much of this stuff he actually believed, but, uh, you know, he was like, well, I thought my ideas were right, um, and I was helping out students and co-authors, and I kind of felt like it was pro-social in some way. I don't know. That might be total bullshit. Yeah, right. Well, I guess we all bullshit ourselves about lots of things, but maybe we don't all commit fraud. (laughs) I hope not. Um, So one of the things I bullshit myself about is uh, whether I'm actually going to drink two beers. But today, I'm going to do it. I'm going to grab another beer from the fridge right now. Good for you. And uh, so we'll, we'll be right back after this. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So we're on Twitter at Four Beers Pod, where you can at mention or DM us. That will go at least to me and Mickey. If you'd rather email us, our email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Uh, finally, our website, fourbeers.com. You can find any of our episodes there. You can drop us a line there also if you'd like. If you are enjoying the show, please do take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. It just helps other people discover the show, and we really enjoy reading the reviews. Okay, so beer number two. Um, this is a place that's actually right downstairs of uh, uh, my place in Montreal called uh, Dispensary Microbrewery, and I, I've had some of their beers before, and uh, I've enjoyed them. Uh, so this is uh, Schmutz uh, Alsatian IPA, and it has cool. some storks on the can. I, I yeah, I like the can. Yeah, it's a nice can, right? They they often have like nice art on their cans. So I don't, I don't know what an Alsatian IPA is, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to crack it open and see. I mean, just a regular IPA to me, to be honest. Um, but that's <laughs> no, nothing very Alsatian about nothing it. Nothing especially Alsatian about it, but uh, but it says it's a tasty IPA. Maybe Alsatian just means regular. Mm-hmm. You know French. Is that French for regular? <laughs> as far as I know. Uh, excellent. All right. Um, okay, so... Uh, before the break, I was well. I, I went on a bit of a on a bit of a rage here. Yeah. So I have a question about your your rant. Yeah. Shoot. So okay. Um, if you were like deciding what the punishment would be for committing fraud, tampering with their data, um, what would you choose? I think it should be similar to other kinds of white collar crime, where um, you know people might get house arrest, they might get actual prison time, but I think if it's a repeated pattern 
of falsification across multiple papers um that uh that warrants real punishment yeah i'm i'm not uh a fan of people getting prison time as as we probably know from other episodes of the show but i do um yeah i do think the idea that you just sort of like get the get the um rewards of your uh fraud taken away from you as punishment does feel a little bit unsatisfying i mean i think there are obviously um massive reputational consequences um but i'm not i'm not sure that that counts as sort of like society induced accountability right like a very specific group of people now think you suck but you don't even have to give your profits back right if you made Mm -hmm. money like uh, your high paid job your speaker fees whatever you don't have to give any of that back right right like some of your papers will get retracted it's like wow what a what a punishment so stopple interestingly um he did get in legal trouble because i think it was related to falsifying uh, data that he used as the basis of a grant application. Mm-hmm. So that's how they got him. Um, the Dutch are famously lenient. You know, they're sort of more in, in your corner. Yes. Um, so yeah, you fucking murder somebody and you go to prison for like 10 years or something. It's it's, it's really uh, astoundingly lenient. So they only gave him community service, but he did have to do some community service. So maybe like if we don't want to be, you know, pro-carceral whatever, we could say she should have to pick up a lot of litter or whatnot. I kind of like that. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Um, all asterisk, of course, assuming that this is proven out. And like, I, yeah, we we should always keep that in mind. Like, we're we're not at a stage where like Stoppel confessed, like almost immediately, right? So mm-hmm. we'll we'll see, we'll see. But I mean, in general, if somebody commits fraud on this scale, I think there ought to be real punishment beyond just you get fired and your papers get retracted. So both of us have sort of. Um, speculated that this might be more widespread um, than, you know, just this one case. And so I'm wondering, like, if if there are people out there who know that they've, like, moved some cases around and some studies that they've published, um, what is... So first of all, what should they do? And second of all, how should we, like, as a field, respond? Like, so say say they confess that they've done this um, in sort of an effort to do the right thing. Yeah. Should we have sort of a one-time amnesty where it's like fess up to your fraud and uh, retract those papers? And we, Because then, you know, in order to make it appealing, it would have to be you don't get fired. And I just think you should get fired. Right. I don't know what I would advise somebody in that position to do. It's tough. Um, if it were me, I would say find some other pretext to... Uh, to retract the paper, mm. say that there was some error in in the data, you know, um, aggregation or an- analysis or something that um, caused the results to be significant when they weren't actually unretracted on that basis. Mm-hmm. And definitely delete your Excel files from the OSF. No. Okay. Okay. So this, this raises another question for me, which is like, so the data collada post is so detailed and specific, um, but is there like sort of a a danger in in detailing how fraud is caught that it makes now fraud easier to commit. Yeah, you know, I was kind of thinking about that too, right? Because this calc chain thing is non-obvious. Yeah. And now it's sort of like burned, like it's out there. I don't know what their thinking was behind that. I I think maybe 
what uh, what they were thinking is it, it's worth it in order to convince people that this is a really definitive case in order to mm-hmm. start like a broader conversation about what we do to prevent fraud. Right. Which is which is where I you know think that we ought to go eventually um, here now, um, but yeah, it's, there's definitely a cost. Like it, it does make it easier for people to get away with it if now they know this is one way you could get caught. I will say it requires formulas in the Excel, and uh-huh. I don't know how common that is that you post a document in Excel with formulas in it. I feel like I don't see that so often. Right. Yeah, so like if I'm posting a data file um as an Excel file, often that's just sort of raw data. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the formulas is probably kind of an unusual case. Okay, yeah. so before we move on, um I I do want to talk a bit about I saw, you know, the uh the reactions online, um mostly kind of shock and also praising the data collada guys um, right. for bringing this forward and doing like a, really like an uncompensated massive yeah. job yeah, at this, so right? Like, yeah, like, and, and you can't put it on your CV. So you're just dedicating, you know, hours and hours that you don't get paid for um, directly. And that doesn't bring you any sort of like kind of measurable career benefits and pouring it into this just basically like because you think it's the right thing to do. Um, so most folks, I think, held that attitude. There were a few uh, people that I saw that were talking about stuff like, you know, witch hunting and vigilantes. Mm-hmm. And I wonder whether you whether you have any reaction like that. Like it, it, the idea that, you know, it's bad somehow for people to be going around freelance trying to catch fraudsters. I don't think that I have that reaction at all. I mean... I think that um, I think that catching fraud is really important, and as you say, I think that it's thankless work. And in some t- in some cases, it's like the opposite. Like um, people, yeah, think that you are just out to smear other people's reputations, um, and so they make uncharitable, um, yeah, inferences about you based on you know, all of this work that you put into doing this. And I think that it's a ton of work. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that the, I think that the efforts that the data Colada guys put into this are, are really commendable. And I, yeah, the fact that I like, don't like the idea of sending people to prison doesn't mean I think that, um, yeah, that people shouldn't be accountable for their actions. Um, so yeah, I mean, to me, this point of view, honestly, it, it, it's, it's baffling. Like you're saying that people shouldn't try to detect fraud, that you should be able to make up your data and get away with it. Because as Joe pointed out, when we, when we had him on the problem with vigilantes is they're doing the job of the police, Mm -hmm. right? Like we have police. We don't want citizens to pretend to be the police, but here there are no police. Right. In fact, if there's any police, it's us, right? It's on us right. to to find fraud and, and kind of more broadly to scrutinize each other's work. That is literally part of the job. So like if you're objecting to this, what you're saying actually de facto is I think fraud should be allowed to continue and not be detected. And to me as a scientist, how can you think that? It's just like sometimes I feel like Twitter brings you into contact with people where you're like, I literally do not understand this worldview. Mm-hmm. 
it's not like, oh, I see where you're coming from and we have different values and maybe like weigh these things differently and disagree. It's like, I, I just don't get it. I just don't get it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know where that's coming from. I mean, I guess I guess people see the like amount of time and work that goes into this and they're like, and maybe they don't understand or they don't appreciate or value the like, um, the importance of identifying fraud. Um, which suggests that maybe you don't think that the work that we do is important and maybe there are lots of people who who think that um but i think people are making this like assumption that the motive is to like to tear people down um yeah and i think that it would quickly become clear that that motive would not be like a sustaining motive for stuff like this yeah i mean that's just like Nobody does this for self-interested reasons, right? Like it's just so much work and lots of people get pissed off at you right. and you don't get formal credit for it. So that would, it, it would just be very dumb to do this as a way of like self-advancement. Right. Like it is, it, it seems so kind of selfless and pro-social to me to on a volunteer basis say. And in some ways the vigilante aspect, I mean, yeah, obviously there are um, many ways like this, that this is not a scenario that's like, um, trying to like play the role of a police officer, but um, it's I think sort of how we act as though science works, right? We say that we're all checking each other's data. There's the peer review process, but also with like the increasing availability of open data. The whole point of that is so. I mean, there's many points of open data, but one of them is so that other people can check your work. You know, and other people can make sure that um, the like results that were reported in your paper are held up with, by the data, right? Like the whole the whole idea is that greater transparency and openness means that you are more accountable to other people and other scientists. Um, and so that's the it's literally set up so that you know people are being asked to be vigilantes right and it's the whole basis of our pitch to the public as to why they should trust us look yes. we scrutinize each other's we're right exactly like that's why we're credible right so that people who make up data absolutely undermine our credibility and then like second order people who say well we shouldn't care that much about people who make up data or it's indecent to go after people who make up data like that undermines the key reason that the public ought to believe what we're doing right oh Okay. Well, glad we're on the same page. <laughs> Last thing I wanted to talk about. Um, let's say we take away from this, wow, like we have not been taking fraud seriously. It really is a huge problem for us. We need to change. What do we actually do? Yeah. it I, Fraud feels like such a hard problem because, yeah, so many of the solutions that we've come up with to make our research methods um, stronger and make our findings more reliable are things that assume that people aren't going to outright lie, right? So something like pre-registration, right? Having people say what they're going to do in advance and how they're going to analyze their data, that that starts from an assumption that that we are prone to convincing ourselves that our theory was right and we're prone to confirmation bias, like looking for patterns that affirm our original theory or our hypotheses. Um, and that we can, you know, selectively report things that um, align with our expectations. But it assumes that we aren't going to just like straight up lie, right? It assumes that if we put 
you know, like um, controls in place that then we won't be able to convince ourselves that we were going to do things differently or that, you know, the, the data say something that they don't actually say. Um, so I don't know, you've noted a couple of problems with stopping fraud, one of which is um, that it's hard to imagine a field where somebody can't get ahead by making things up. I mean, if you can if you can mimic what people are doing by actually doing research without going through the process of doing research, um, that's just going to make you more productive. And um, like how I don't know how you compete with that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I I've been thinking a little bit about how do you make things more auditable. Not with the idea that necessarily you would post this publicly for everything, but just that you leave some sort of trail that can be checked. And that checking is sort of more routine, right? So it might be like you randomly get audited because you published in this journal. Mm -hmm. um, not necessarily that you're suspected of wrongdoing even. Uh, so one possibility would be, you know, if you run this study on Qualtrics, I mean, most people use Qualtrics to host their surveys online, right? Then in theory, you can share the original survey with whoever you want, and they have access to the original data as it mm -hmm. was collected by Qualtrics, right? And so that would defeat this sort of like condition um, swapping right? Uh, that seems to have happened in, in this study, for example. And so you could mm -hmm. say like, okay, there's some data custodian when you when a paper is accepted and you have to share the Qualtrics, the original Qualtrics with them mm -hmm. and they archive that. And just in case, if it ever comes up, you know, you have those original Qualtrics data and you can go back to that. Mm -hmm. um, institutions like uh, universities already, if you have an institutional Qualtrics account, have access to all of your surveys. Yes, so that's, that's another true. way that could be done. They could just like suck in all of those surveys and archive them somewhere. And then in case... You can look. Right. Where it gets tougher is like, what if it's not Qualtrics, right? What if it's, so if it's a lab study where you're using some sort of other software like um, Inquisit, you could also have a norm of like, okay, the very raw data has to be archived with somebody mm -hmm. trusted. Um, and it's not like it's impossible to fake that either, but it's just tougher. And I think it's just, you know, it's not about making it impossible. It's just about making it more onerous. Um, it's certainly tougher to fake there, um, like in the raw output from Inquisit, than in like an Excel, like was done here. What's really tough is what if it's you know um, paper questionnaires that get entered. Uh, mm -hmm. if it's, uh, notes that are taken, like observations that are made by a confederate. Um, so they rate the persons, you know, uh, how happy do they appear or whatever? Mm -hmm. Like, I guess the best you can do is say you need to retain all of the original materials, all of the original rating sheets, maybe scan those. Maybe those are archived somewhere as a supplement as well. Mm -hmm. Like that's definitely not foolproof. Um, and I've been like involved in a fraud case where it seemed like the person had actually faked those, like uh -huh. the original questionnaires. So yeah. somebody's sufficiently determined they can do that, but it would make it harder. I don't know. What do you think? It would make it a lot harder. Um, yeah. Like with the example that you gave with Qualtrics, right? It's like, um, 
having having access to people's original Qualtrics files would would help a lot with detecting fraud for sure. Um, then you can just go like an extra step and say, okay, well, what if people um, like have have them and their friends like enter data on Qualtrics that goes along with their hypotheses, right? There's there's always like right. there's always something that you can do, but I guess if it's a lot harder, then it starts to become not worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think that's the right way to think about it. Right. So like you lock your door, not because it's impossible to break in through a window, but because it makes it a little more difficult. Right. 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 And right now we're just leaving the door open. We're like, whoever wants to wander in here and steal my TV, feel free. Yeah. I wonder, um, I wonder what prevents people from, (laughs) maybe this is a strange question. What prevents people from committing fraud? Like, so when we publicize high profile cases like this, do you think that acts like a deterrent? Do you think people are like, Oh, actually people do get caught doing stuff like this. Maybe I won't do it. Um, or do you think people are, I don't know, guided by their moral compass and not deterrence? Um, I think deterrence matters for sure. I thought you were going to go a different direction and say like, oh, maybe this would like give people ideas. They're like, wait a minute. I never knew. That's an, um, also a possibility. I mean, yeah, when you look at a situation like that and you're like, oh, well, I mean, I think somebody actually like posted something like this on Twitter, n- not suggesting it, but saying like, all you would have had to do was change the participant numbers and then like rerun the formulas. Right. Exactly. So I can see how that could be tempting, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, don't make this person's dumb mistake. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's like like most other things where uh, we have some amount of enforcement is that most people are honest, but you, when you leave the door open to being exploited by dishonest people, um, you might start to select for them, right? So I, I don't think that most people cheat on their taxes, actually, but we have audits um, to discourage cheating from becoming rampant and, and the norm. Right. Um, and I, I think it's very similar here. I, I think most researchers like are not going to make up data ever. Um, and I think some people are sort of on the margin of like, well, under certain circumstances, maybe they would be tempted. And there's some folks who might hear like, hey, it's super easy to make up your data and get ahead and like make a lot of money. That sounds like a great choice for me, right? And mm-hmm. you want to like make it less attractive for like, Groups two and three, and I guess ideally keep out keep out group three entirely, right? They could make them go do some other sort of fraud elsewhere. <laughs> yeah, right. Make them somebody else's problem. Yeah. <laughs> do we want that though? <laughs> right. Maybe arguably you're doing less damage here than if you're like I don't know, like uh, stealing from war widows or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that right now, like the doors are wide open, or that's how people perceive it? Like, do you think that people think no one is ever gonna check my data? Uh, I think uh, historically that was the correct thing to think. I think that's changing now that, you know, posting data is becoming more of a norm. Mm -hmm. But I think historically it was like people like, I mean, so Stoppel went to, I don't know, a decade or something before he got caught. Uh, Gino, if this is true, same, right? So people really weren't getting caught and and still it may be that we're only catching the very like dumb and obvious people yeah right or or also that maybe the most high profile people right um i don't know if that's like part of that factors into people's decisions about who to pursue but i 
would assume that it does. I absolutely think, I, I don't know about whom to pursue, although I wouldn't be surprised if yes, but also the way that um, the, the, this paper came to the attention of the data collada folks is people were trying to replicate these studies and not being able to, mm -hmm. right? And so the, the fact that the paper was so high impact and was in this like high profile journal definitely got more eyes on it. And so people started paying attention. Um, so I think if you're just some nobody publishing in really obscure journals, like, yeah, you probably are just more likely to get away with it because nobody's looking, like nobody's right. reading the papers to start with. Yeah, right. So it's not going to become highly cited. It's not not going to be the subject of replication attempts. It's not going to be adopted by policymakers. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So like maybe you could say, oh, the problem with Stoppel and maybe Gino is, is they flew too close to the sun, you know, like if they had just been satisfied to live a like more obscure life where they didn't publish as much um, and didn't get as famous, they would still be doing it today. Yeah. Wait, I have one more question about your solution, the audits solution. So who would be doing the audits? Um, yeah. Uh, universities or journals. And I'm not sure that either of those institutions are particularly well set up for that. Right. Um, certainly journals don't seem to really do much at all once the paper is published. Uh -huh. um, they're almost like, not our problem anymore, uh -huh. right? Um, at Tilburg, uh, post-Stoppel, we did have a system where the university would audit us occasionally, okay. um, which was kind of unpleasant. Um, yeah, we resented it at the time. We didn't particularly like the auditors. Uh -huh. But now I kind of feel like, yeah, maybe that's, you know, departments need to police themselves. Uh -huh. Like... It's fucking crazy that if I, I don't know, I buy a book out off of Amazon, I have to submit like three different forms of documentation to get reimbursed for it from uh -huh. my research funds, right? They are incredibly tight with that. Uh -huh. If I were to put a claim out there in the scientific literature, you know, I, I don't need to produce any documentation at all, right? Yeah, like it's, yeah. it's wild. It's wild. It also like, yeah, highlights how immediately we go to like go to money for figuring out what the like value of the harm done is like right away. We're thinking about like how much Gino makes and you know, how much of that is tied to the fraud, but like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, presumably we are in this field because we think that we can learn new things and that it's like important to get them right. You know? Uh, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I think it's natural when, when you, hear about this sort of extensive wrongdoing to be like, oh, and it was a person who like really benefited. I mean, it just makes it worse. I think it also makes it easier to like villainize people, which, um, yeah, I'm not saying that, that, uh, that condemnation isn't warranted in these kinds of cases, but it's like, oh yeah, if somebody is like faking their data and they like get paid, you know, $55,000 a year and, they, you know, have like only ever given a talk at like the next university over in this state or whatever. I think right. it's like not as juicy. It's right. It's easy right. to be like, oh, you're rich and famous. You know, how dare you? No, it definitely makes somebody a more attractive target. No question. As opposed to like Joe Schmo at regional state school. Yeah. Yeah, so, but, well, that's what aspiring fraudsters can learn from our podcast. A, don't post your excels. B, be Joe Schmo at Unknown Regional State School, and probably you'll just fly under the radar. There you go.
There you go. News you can use from two psychologists for beers. Uh, anything else we want to cover? I think that's it. Awesome. Uh, well, thanks for listening and we'll see you all next time.